Welcome to Fiscal One-on-One. This Iowa Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by the Fiscal Services Division staff. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a fiscal topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. The following interview was conducted on September 7, 2012. Jennifer Acton of the Fiscal Services Division interviewed David Boyd, State Court Administrator of the Iowa Judicial Branch, regarding the history of the judicial branch, court reorganization during the 1980s, and court technology in the 1990s and 2000s. My name is Jennifer Acton. I'm a senior legislative analyst with the Legislative Services Agency, Fiscal Services Division. Today we are talking with David Boyd, the state court administrator for the Iowa Judicial Branch. Good morning, David, and thanks for taking the time to meet with me today. You're welcome. Thank you. David, when did you first become the state court administrator? I became the state court administrator in May of 2003 when the court named me to replace my predecessor, Bill O'Brien, who had been state court administrator for only about 30 years. Prior to becoming the state court administrator, I was the deputy state court administrator for 19 years, responsible for most of the day-to-day operations of the judicial branch, and then prior to that, I was a district court administrator in the third judicial district up in northwest Iowa. So all in all, I have now spent 35 years working for the Iowa Judicial Branch. During your time as a state court administrator, what would you say have been your toughest challenges? The most difficult challenges that I've experienced have been all pretty much related to budget reductions, budget cuts, and maintaining adequate funding of the judicial branch. Those are always the most difficult times. There are only two days in 35 years that I did not want to come to work in the morning, which I consider to be blessed to have only had two days. And one of them certainly was in November of uh, 2009, the last time we had to go through serious budget reductions a 12% reduction in force in the judicial branch. In your opinion thus far, what has been your greatest accomplishments? Survival. (laughs) I think that my greatest accomplishments starts with my track record in terms of people that I have hired over the years to be around me. If you were to look at the people that have worked or currently work for the judicial branch, during the last 35 years that I have had some direct involvement in their selection, I think you will find that I've got a very good track record in picking very talented people to help me do my job and many of them have now worked for the judicial branch for 20, 25 and in at least one case 30 years. I'm especially proud of the fact that well over half of those individuals happen to be women. I've always been able to find and recruit top quality people, regardless of gender or anything else. Beyond that, I think that in terms of accomplishments, I think helping make the transition from a county-based property tax-based court system to the state-funded system we have today 
was a huge undertaking, which we were able to accomplish and do it on time and on schedule. And then I think probably next would come overseeing the development of all of our IT projects we've gone through in the judicial branch, one of which we'll talk about later probably that is, if I get it implemented before I retirement, will be my number one accomplishment probably. Court reorganization occurred in 1982 through 1987 in multiple phases. So prior to 1982, what did the judicial branch look like? Prior to 1982, in many ways, the judicial branch looked an awful lot like it looks today, actually, because the reorganization, for the most part, was invisible. And by that, I mean that the court reorganization of 1983, which was then implemented over the next four fiscal years, was more of a behind-the-scenes funding issue and moving and consolidating somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 employees statewide into a state department branch agency, whichever word you choose, as opposed to 99 separate county clerk's offices, eight different, or actually more than that, multiple juvenile court services areas, our eight judicial districts, and so a lot of it was invisible because the we still have the same personnel and prior to reorganization the Supreme Court still had the constitutional responsibility to oversee the administration of the judicial branch and so with the reorg it's not as if we created a new court system so much and so people still go to the county courthouse to go to the clerk's office or to go to court or whatever it might be. In many ways, the court system looked alike. However, in some ways, where it became different through that process, for example, the clerk of court, which previously had been an elected position, became an appointed position, part of the reorg. That's one sort of major change that came with reorganization. And the concept there was to try to ensure an ongoing professional administration of the office that provides the most support <laughs> for judges and magistrates. And previously, that office was headed up by someone that was an elected official that frankly could tell a judge to go fly a kite, could tell the state court administrator to go fly a kite. And so part of the process that the governor, the legislature, and the Supreme Court went through as they studied and eventually came up with the state funding model that we have took the clerks out of the electoral process and made them appointees of the judge or judges that they actually work for. So other than that, all of a sudden we had 2,000 new state employees, so to speak, but the counties had 2,000 less <laughs> employees. So, What prompted court reorganization in the early 1980s? I think you have to look at the rich tradition that we have here in Iowa for 
being out front when it comes to improving our judicial branch of government. And by that, I mean, I was always been near the forefront of what are considered to be improvements in court organization and court structure. In 1962, just to use this past century anyway, 1962, we took judges out of the electoral process and partisan politics and adopted the merit selection system where judges are now appointed. They stand for retention. It's a merit selection. We try to get the best candidates to apply. We have both lawyers and lay people who are involved in the nominating process and the governor makes a selection. So we moved to merit selection in 1962. In 1965, Iowa instituted a mandatory retirement age for judges and magistrates. In 1973, we created the Unified Trial Court, where we, instead of having multiple layers of courts at the trial court level, we just have the Iowa District Court now. Now, we have different types of judicial officers in that court, but there's only one trial court. And so moving to state funding was kind of a in many ways a natural progression from some of these other reforms. The primary purpose was to provide some property tax relief to the counties and to, prior to court reorg in the 80s, the state paid for the salaries, travel, and education of judges the counties paid for everything else. All the other employees that, in essence, were working for the judicial branch, clerks, court reporters, juvenile court officers, court attendants, those were all funded by the counties, sometimes by an individual county, and in some cases, all of the counties in the judicial district, and some of those expenses were prorated uh, based on population and that kind of thing. And so a lot of it was to provide some tax relief and move the funding of the court system from a property tax-based system to the state's general fund, which is much more broad-based in terms of who all pays different types of taxes that goes into the state's general fund. And then probably another major factor had to do with indigent defense. And by that I mean at that time, individuals who were deemed to be indigent, that were accused of a crime and were provided defense, legal defense, at the expense of the public, it was that was paid for by the counties. And not too long before I arrived in 1977, just as one example, up in northwest Iowa, in Lyon County, some young fellows, I think they were all brothers actually, came across from South Dakota into Lyon County and committed a just a horrible murder in a Lyon County park. And of course they were apprehended, they were tried in Lyon County. They were indigent and so they were provided attorney at public expense and frankly for a very small county like that 
because there was the trial, there was the appeal, eventually there was post-conviction relief applications, et cetera, et cetera. And something like that can almost bankrupt a small county. And at that time, Senator Lucas DeCoster from Sioux County, right next to Lyon County, was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he became a very big proponent of looking at state funding. That's kind of how the ball got rolling. So was it originally something that the judicial branch brought forth to the General Assembly? Or was it a joint study or? It was a collaboration of all three branches of government. It was done the way we like to do things in Iowa, I think. All three branches were involved in the study. Technically, I believe one of the major studies in trying to identify the cost and, and whatnot was actually through the, what is now the Legislative Services Agency. So the, the legislature technically did that. The legislature had interim committees that discussed it. In fact, one of those interim committees was chaired not only by Senator Lucas DeCoster, but also by Representative Nancy Shamanic from Monticello, who just happens to now be Nancy Boyd, but I didn't know her at the time. And so it was done collaborative. The court was willing to look at it. The court found some assistance through the National Center for State Courts and some other organizations and members of both the executive branch and legislative branch and judicial branch went to some conferences where the focus was on state funding to get ideas. One of the things that the, the court wanted in the reorg, for the most part, as I said earlier, this is fairly invisible behind the scenes when it comes to moving the cost and whatnot, but one of the structural things was that piece about clerks being taken out of the electoral process and made into an appointed position. If the court was going to take on the responsibility for all the personnel in the judicial branch, etc., it wanted to in some way have control over that situation. They didn't want to have the headache and not have the ability to deal with it. Now, as it turns out, that the Clerks Association supported the legislation, so they were okay with it. And as I like to tell people, we came up with an Iowa solution to the issue because the clerks are not appointed by the Supreme Court. They're not appointed by the state court administrator. They're appointed down at the district level. So even though we went to a centralized funding system, we still have a lot of decentralized administration and local administration within the framework of state guidelines. And that's where we and Iowa seem to be most comfortable. How is employee morale during all these changes during this time? Overall, I think employee morale through the mid-80s, I think was pretty good. Obviously, I think people were apprehensive because they weren't sure what was really coming. They knew that they were gonna become a state employee, but they didn't necessarily know what that meant. They knew what their local benefits were. They knew who set their salary. They knew how much vacation they had, uh, what kind of other benefits, etc. And so I think there would probably have been more apprehension than anything. I think it was helpful that, as I said earlier, that, for example, like the Clerks Association, 
was on board with the legislation. The Iowa Judges Association was on board with the legislation. Now, the, the judges were already state employees but and paid for by the state. And so I think there was clearly some apprehension, but I think as people got into it and found that for the most part it was just that their check came from a different place, I think everybody kind of took a sigh of relief and just relaxed and we moved on. So juvenile court officers are under the judicial branch, but yet they're funded from the Department of Human Services. Is that part of a result from court reorg, or had it always been that way? For juvenile court services, it pretty much mirrors the way it was in the past to a certain extent. In Iowa, the juvenile court officers, the formerly called juvenile probation officers, the juvenile court officers and their support staff were always part of the judicial branch at the local level. The judges, for example, appointed the juvenile court officers, etc., etc., and they were paid for with county funds. There's always been a mix, and they're part of the judicial branch today. We pay for the juvenile court officers and their staff and their basic operating expenses. The piece that we don't pay for are the program dollars. Those, for the most part, come through the Department of Human Services. In the past, some of that came through the counties as well, but that was a separate program called county-based funding because when the juvenile code was last overhauled, for lack of a better term, which was in 1976, I think, the state took over a substantial, well before court reorg in terms of funding, the state took over a substantial part of juvenile treatment and program expenses. And what the state did is it created a system where the amount of money that the counties were spending for delinquency programming was sort of capped and that counties had to continue to spend that much and anything above that cap going forward after the implementation of the new juvenile code in 1976, the state then picked up that cost. So their situation has always been somewhat different in that although they work for the judicial branch, a lot of the money that they use to actually provide services to juveniles comes from DHS. Now this is States organize juvenile court differently. In some states, juvenile court services is actually part of the executive branch, just like adult corrections. Iowa is one of those states that's taken a different route. The personnel that do the work for juvenile court have always been part of the judicial branch, both before and after reorg. When I think of the judicial branch, I think of judges yet the administrative law judges are under the Department of Inspections and Appeals. Why is that? That's primarily because the administrative law judges are part of the Administrative Procedures Act here in Iowa and they perform basically an executive branch function. They are there the Administrative Procedures Act sets up a process whereby executive branch agencies have a quasi-legislative function in that 
the agency write administrative rules for how the agency is going to operate. Those rules are then reviewed by the legislative branch and the legislative branch can reject those rules. But then as the public interacts with executive branch agencies in dealings with those rules, there needed to be some kind of a process whereby if someone wanted to challenge something, there was a process in place for that to be heard. Well, initially that was the department head ultimately was, and to put a little bit more of a due process in that system, uh, ALJs were called to start with. For the most part, were hearing officers. ALJs is actually the administrative law judge title is fairly recent. I don't want off the top of my head to try to say exactly how recent, but it's a fairly recent change. For example, the administrative law judges, the ones that I'm most familiar with probably are the ones that, that handle administrative cases for the Department of Transportation and driver's license suspensions and all that kind of stuff. And they were hearing officers and at some point, I don't remember exactly when the title was changed to administrative law judge to try to show the importance of the position. They initially, a lot of those hearing officers were created within a specific department in the executive branch. After we went through court reorg <laughs> from about 83 to 87, state government went through two reorgs uh, in the late 80s. And in one of those, I don't remember which one, but in one of those, many of the what are now administrative law judges were consolidated under one executive branch agency as an effort to be more efficient, more cost effective, instead of having individual ones in different departments to consolidate them and have sort of a pool of ALJs who could handle a variety of different appeals coming through the administrative process. Now eventually, if someone is dissatisfied with a ruling by an ALJ, eventually there still is the right to go into district court under Chapter 17A and bring an agency a review. That's kind of why they are where they are. During court reorganization, why did the county attorneys stay at the county level and were there any discussions about making them state employees as well? For the most part, the county attorneys were never part of any discussion when we went through court reorganization. I think that that's, if you stop and think about it for a moment, the Office of the County Attorney, in addition to handling criminal prosecutions in the name of the state in the county, is also the legal counsel to the other county offices, also handles all of the civil court work for a county, and so it's because in Iowa, the county attorney has both a criminal as well as a civil responsibility to the county. To consider them as a state employee, so to speak, 
would have required, and I assume maybe this is why they were really never part of the discussion, but would require a significant restructuring in the current statute that lays out the responsibilities of the county attorney. I mean, you could create statewide prosecutors if the legislature, the governor, decided to do that and take away all of that prosecution from the counties and make that, but like I say, that would require some major restructuring and so I think that's why they were never talked about. Why are magistrates in the IPERS retirement system while all other judges are in the judicial retirement system? For starters, not all other judges have always been in the judicial retirement system. The judicial retirement system was created in 1949 and it was created to provide a retirement system primarily for district judges and Supreme Court. This was before we went to the Unified Trial Court in 1973, some 25 years later. And so at that time, we still had addition to district judges, we had municipal courts, we had justice of the peace courts, we had mayor's courts, we had police courts. The movement to what we now call the, the Unified Trial Court didn't come along until 1973. At that time, when all of those other judges and justices of the peace and whatnot came into the Unified Trial Court, they got new titles. So we had district judges, we also then had district associate judges and judicial magistrates. Most of those judges and judicial officers that came in under the Unified Trial Court, if they had a retirement system, they were in IPERS. So initially, they remained in IPERS. Over time, all of the full-time judges, the district associate judges, the associate juvenile judges, were migrated, so to speak, into the judicial retirement system where they are today, as you pointed out. And the magistrates, I think primarily because the judicial magistrate position is part-time, it's not mandatory that they even be in IPERS. I mean, it's an election that they have, really. And so I think that the decision was made to just simply keep magistrates who want to participate in a retirement system to just keep them in IPERS. And so they've never been migrated over. The others have. In Iowa, there are eight judicial districts. How were those decided upon? Those were decided upon by the legislature. Over time, over the 160 years now or whatever for the state of Iowa, we have fluctuated in terms of the number of judicial districts. I think at one point there were as many as at least 21 that I know of. There may have been a few more. So it, it's not like we've always had eight judicial districts. The eight judicial districts came right before the Unified Trial Court in 1973. You might say in some ways it was part of preparing for the Unified Trial Court because you were going to have a lot of judges that were now going to come under the general supervision, so to speak, of a chief judge and be part of the Iowa court system as opposed to just being a municipal judge or a justice of the peace. And so to provide a better administrative structure, it was decided to consolidate down into 
eight judicial districts. At the same time, we created what are called judicial election districts, of which we, for a long time, we had 13, we now have 14, but where not all, we have some judicial districts that are fairly small and compact, but we have about half of our judicial districts that are multi-county and stretch over a wide area. Within some judicial districts, there were these what are called judicial election districts created, where part of the counties in the judicial district might be in a judicial election district 3A and the rest in that district in what's known as 3B. The sole purpose of the judicial election districts is for the nomination, the appointment, and the retention of district judges. When we consolidated, I think right before it, I said at one point we were had as many as 21 districts. I think right before we went to eight in like 1972, I think we had 18 judicial districts. And when we went to eight, the, the intent was to try to make sure that as the, the number of districts shrank and the area that they covered grew, all the judges weren't appointed from the same part of a judicial district and, and have great distances and whatnot to service everyone. And so the judicial election district concept was created. We still have it today. And judges are nominated, the governor appoints, and they are then retained by the voters based on those sub-districts. In the late 1990s, early 2000s, the makeup of the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals changed. The Supreme Court went from nine justices to seven justices, and the Court of Appeals went from six judges to nine judges. What was the reason for the change? The reason for the change, let's back up actually, prior to 1976, all we had was the Supreme Court. There was no Court of Appeals. And in Iowa, an individual, unlike in the federal system and unlike in many states, in Iowa, you have a constitutional right to an appeal. Because of the appellate workload, in 1976, the court, once again, working together, all three branches of government, the decision was made to create an intermediate court of appeals. So that court was created, and it had been around for 25 years or so. Prior to the change, for the Supreme Court, even after the Court of Appeals was created, for the Supreme Court to continue to do its work as well as its administrative and regulatory functions, the Supreme Court sat in panels of five to hear cases. They didn't hear them in banc where all members of the court participate. The, the Court of Appeals actually heard cases in bank where they were actually having the whole Court of Appeals here, whereas at the Supreme Court, only five of the nine justices actually sat on cases, unless occasionally the court thought that it needed to have an, an en banc hearing. And so since the Supreme Court's actually the court of last resort, the decision was made that it would be best really for it to sit in bank, but that in doing that, there really wasn't the need to have nine. We looked at other states around the country. Uh, there are 
many Supreme Courts in the United States, state Supreme Courts that may have only five or seven or whatever. And so the compromise that was reached was, let's add three more Court of Appeals judges to give the Court of Appeals nine judges total. They could hear cases in panels of three, maybe five if they want to as well, but at least in panels of three. Most of what they were getting at that time um, were cases that should have been resolved using fairly well-established case law and whatnot and could process those cases and to let the Supreme Court then sit in bank. We also timed the legislation so that because we had mandatory retirement on the books, we knew when certain justices would have to retire if they didn't retire sooner. And so legislation passed knowing that for the first couple of years, we would deal with it through attrition. And when a Supreme Court justice retired, that position would not be replaced until we got down to the seven. So for a couple of years, we had either nine on the Supreme Court, then eight, and then and then seven. It only took a couple, two or three years because we had mandatory retirement that we knew coming up. Let's talk about technology for a moment. In 1994, the Iowa Court Information System, or more commonly known as ISIS, was created. What were the biggest changes and challenges that you've seen from the implementation of ISIS? ISIS by itself, the Iowa Court Information System, is a case management system. We today oftentimes still refer to all of our IT operation as ISIS. We've never seemed to be able to break away from that. So I, I'm going to try and kind of divide this up into manageable chunks here in terms of talking about ISIS and our IT operation. When we went through court reorganization in the mid-80s and we went to state funding, I would guess that probably at least 80 of the 99 county clerks offices were still totally manual systems where not only was everything filed in paper, but the docket books were what I referred to once upon a time as hernia books you know, these large docket books that weigh 40 pounds or whatever, and entries would be handwritten into the docket books. We had, I would say, less than 20 counties that had any automation at that time in county clerk's offices. And some of them had more of a automation than others. In any event, when we went through court reorg, the legislation said that in any county where we currently had some kind of automation for the clerk's offices, the county had to continue to provide that service. Of course, we had to then reimburse the county for providing that service. And so we were continuing to operate with basically 80 or so counties that were just totally manual and a hodgepodge of other county systems that didn't talk to each other and we had no statewide uniformity and so 
1987, we began an internal study of creating a statewide automation system, a statewide case management system. I think we may have actually started implementing in about 1991, and then as you point out, we were done by like 1994 or thereabouts. And so I think the challenges in doing that, first of all, not very many states, if any, had ever done a statewide automation project. Many now have, but at that time, very, very few had. You had the challenge of moving individuals who, at most, used a typewriter, moving them into, into the automated world. Yes, some people did retire rather than move into that automated world when we got to their county. We also had to do significant conversions so that we could take the data that was electronically stored in different counties on different systems, different software, et cetera, et cetera, and move that into ISIS so we didn't lose it. I think one of the other big challenges, and it's a challenge we still deal with today, has to do with the network. Much of what we do, we're one of the heaviest users of the Iowa Communications Network of ICN, at least on the data side, not necessarily on the video, but on the data side, we're one of the biggest users of the ICN. However, because of statutory prohibition, we can't take the ICN to the county courthouse. So we had to build a network where we rode the ICN, that was the easy part, to wherever the point of presence was in a particular county, but then we had and continue to this day have literally hundreds of contracts to take that data from the point of presence in a particular county to the county courthouse through a local telephone exchange. And so that's always been something of a challenge back then and is so today. I'm just happy that the ICN was there. <laughs> I always like to tell a story about the ICN, about two representatives from the governor's office coming to talk with me about the ICN when we first started to plan for ISIS. And after five or ten minutes of them talking about all the benefits of, and it wasn't even the ICN then, it was the old ITN, which the, was the forerunner to what became the ICN. And I finally stopped them and I said, you know, I think I need to confess something here. It may have been presumptuous on my part, but I've just assumed that we get to use the ICN. So if your purpose is to try to sell me on using the ICN and not building our own separate network, we don't need to talk anymore. <laughs> and uh, they walked out and asked if I would come with them to some executive branch agencies and chat with those folks. And I said, anytime. Those were probably the major challenges that we faced when we first started into our own automation. What is the ongoing cost of ISIS and how is that funded? That's a difficult question to answer. 
because as I was talking about earlier, we use the term ISIS to describe our entire IT operation. And there's a lot of things that go on that aren't necessarily ISIS related and we use that network to do a lot of other things today like electronic legal research and and all kinds of other things. So I generally talk about the ongoing cost of of ISIS being somewhere in the two to two and a half million dollar range. And for the most part, and for that, particularly the staff, we use general fund dollars for that. For the rest of our IT and occasionally during some difficult budget times when we've had to make cuts to make sure we kept our automation moving forward. We sometimes have even had to move some of that out of the general fund and into our enhanced core collections fund. In addition to general fund dollars that we get for our ISIS and our IT operation, we have two other funds that help fund all of our IT. One is the Court Technology Fund and the other is the Enhanced Court Collections Fund. Both of those are separate funds in which we get to deposit, well between the two of them, a million dollars a year into Court Technology and four million dollars a year into Enhanced Court Collection. Those are two funds that we can deposit money into that come from revenues that we collect that exceed the projections that the state's revenue estimating conference has set for judicial revenue in a given fiscal year. The, the idea when this was established, the first one back in the late 80s, the idea being, okay, if the state's anticipating a certain amount of money coming in through judicial revenue. And of course, one thing I probably skipped over when I was talking about court reorg, I guess, that I maybe should have mentioned was that in exchange for the property tax relief, money that fines and fees and things like that, for the most part, not all of it, but for the most part, went from the counties to the state general fund. The idea was, okay, if we're expecting a certain amount of judicial revenue to come into the state's general fund in a particular year, if we, through enhanced collection of debt that's owed to the court and other activities, if we exceed that target, we can then deposit, as I say, between the two accounts up to $5 million a year to be used specifically for technology related projects in the court system, be it for judges or for other staff or whatever it might be. The concept that there were two parts to it. One was, in some ways, it would be a reward to the judicial branch for doing a good job of collecting. On the other hand, it provided a mechanism so that the judicial branch could continuously be moving forward in enhancing its use of technology without having to always be dependent upon a general fund 
appropriation where you have to go back year after year to get the funding for a project. The current technology project the Judicial Branch is undertaking is the Electronic Document Management System, or more commonly known as EDMS. What have been the biggest changes and challenges you've seen with EDMS? I think the biggest challenge with EDMS starts with the sheer magnitude of the project. We are basically trying to take the Iowa court system from a system that is heavily dependent on paper. I mean, even though our case management system is automated, all of the paperwork that goes into court files and whatnot is still paper. We're trying to take the court system basically paperless. The other parts of that that make it such a huge undertaking is that we're attempting to go paperless and in doing so, to do so for all case types, whether it's criminal, civil, probate, juvenile, it doesn't matter. All case types are part of this project and all of our filers are part of this project. So that means in addition to our staff and our judges, all of the lawyers that practice in Iowa courts, all of the pro se litigants that practice in Iowa courts, law enforcement, county attorneys, everybody is expected to file with us electronically. And so, for example, when we go out to train when we're moving to another county or several counties, in doing our prep work before we even get to those counties to move them to the EDMS system, we're not only training our own staff and getting them ready, we're out there talking to law enforcement, county attorneys, and also providing them training so that they'll be able to use the system. So that's, in a nutshell, I would say that's probably the largest challenge. It is just so huge. In fact, assuming we're successful, and right now we are, I mean, we have the entire 3B Judicial Election District is now on EDMS, totally functional. I guess we're getting close to having about a half a dozen or so or more counties in Judicial Election District 2B, Story County, Boone, Hamilton, Hardin. We've just come up in Marshall County, so we know it works, but once we get to all 99 counties, then I can say that we will have done something that no one else in the United States is even attempting to do right now. There's no other jurisdiction, not even just a local county, there's no other jurisdiction that I can find in the United States that is attempting to do electronic document management like we are on all case types and all filers. And in fact, there are very good people, very good colleagues of mine and our IT staff around the country that, frankly, they think that we're crazy to be trying to do it. You know, you've got your own people, our own judges and clerk staff that you've got to adjust to this new system. And in addition to that, you've got lawyers and lots of other folks that you've got to get adjusted. The interesting thing is, 
I find anyway so far is that in some instances some of the formerly largest group of naysayers to the project, some judges, who now that they have it, well, first of all, A, didn't follow through with their threat to retire, but now B, are some of our largest supporters. And if I tried to go in now and take it back away from them, all hell would break loose. But I think that's the biggest challenge. Change, in addition to the change that I've been talking about, I think where citizens will see significant change is the fact that much of the court-related business other than a court hearing that they do will continue to become automated and digitized and will allow them to conduct business with the judicial branch and with the courts, other than hearings, as I said, 24-7, 365, and they won't be dependent upon ongoing to the county courthouse. In fact, I would hope that in some ways it may become very beneficial to some of the smaller communities in Iowa. One of a very large supporter of the judicial branch during his time in the legislature, Representative Lance Horbach, on many occasions in talking to his constituents would point out that a lot of smaller communities no longer had a lawyer that actually resided in their town. The lawyers had all moved pretty much into the county seat towns and so that their offices were near the courthouse where they could easily file the papers. And Representative Horbach would talk to his constituents about that when the court system got where he viewed it needing to get to at some point, where an attorney, when they got done with a petition or a motion or whatever it was, would just hit the send button and wouldn't have to send somebody to the courthouse or drive to the courthouse, would just hit the send button on the computer that maybe some of those smaller communities might actually be able to recruit lawyers to live in their community. So I'm actually hopeful that what we're doing will have an impact, not just in terms of the benefit for the judicial branch, but will have an ongoing benefit to not only the citizens, but also to local communities. What type of ongoing operating costs will the system have on the judicial branch? And how are these costs going to be funded? For the most part, right now I would estimate that the ongoing cost of EDM, if you were just talking about EDMS, the ongoing cost probably will end up being in the $2 million to maybe two, two and a half million, similar to what I was talking about in terms of ISIS. So I mean, if one were looking at our ongoing operations for ISIS and EDMS, because sometimes that line sort of will be blurred. It's probably going to be in the four, four and a half million dollar range. Some of it will be funded by the general fund and some of it will be funded through those two technology funds I was talking about. We currently, I think, cash flow out to about 2,000 and 
16 or 17 as we continue to work through the implementation and rolling EDMS out to all 99 counties. Have you been able to identify any cost savings yet? That's a difficult question to answer and let me tell you why. We sort of anticipated that EMS at some point in time would provide some excess capacity in our system, primarily in clerk's offices, because they wouldn't be dealing with paper all the time. Because of the significant reductions that we had to do in 2009, we're still somewhat fearful that maybe we already lost that capacity. However, what we've been able to do, I think as would better be described as redesigning our workflow process and that there are savings that we're still going to see, particularly in clerk's offices, but we're going to be able to use that to help us in terms of providing the trial support for our judges and magistrates that frankly was not adequate prior to November of 2009 and then with the 12% reduction in force in 2009 has been under even greater strain. And so I think we have noticed where we have implemented that it probably is freeing up time for clerk staff to do other things that weren't getting done or in some cases when someone retired or resigned and left we've actually filled that vacancy with a different type of employee maybe it would be a court attendant to help in the courtroom with EDMS and also to provide support staff to judges I think it's going to help us eventually we're not there yet but I think eventually it's going to help us find personnel time savings, I don't know about cost savings, but where we can redesign how we go about delivering judicial services. As you look forward, what do you see as the future challenges facing the judicial branch? First and foremost, I would have to say the largest challenge that we face is maintaining the fair and impartial court structure and system that we have today. There are, in today's world, there seem to be a variety of attacks that come from different directions that we see as potentially chipping away at the high quality court system that we have which starts with our judges. Our Supreme Court, for example, is one of the most cited appellate courts, state appellate courts in the country by other state appellate courts. Our court system as a whole is very well regarded around the country by a variety of different sources. We often talk about, for example, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that ranks our court system, I think, in the top five, particularly in the area of fairness and impartiality. And I think we have to be steadfast in trying to make sure that we maintain that. 
think that other challenges facing the court system today still come from the state's financial problems back in, in 2009 that led to the significant reductions in all of state government. And we're trying to still rebuild the judicial branch and frankly get back to where we were. Today, our workforce, although the number of judges and magistrates might be a little more and our support staff number is a little less, but if you take our whole workforce together combined, the judicial branch today is the same size as it was in 1987 when we got done with court reorganization. At the same time, if you look at our caseload, and primarily you look at not the routine traffic ticket, uniform citation type thing, but our other time-consuming caseload, it's grown by 60%. And so we've done a lot over the years to streamline and to do some other things that have helped us continue to process. We're not moving cases as quickly as we used to, but because we can't, but we need to continue our efforts to try to get the funding to help us rebuild the judicial branch back to a level where we think we can provide the type of service that we want to provide and that we should provide. And then I think trying to maintain the relevance of the court system. We just earlier this year received a final report from the Supreme Court's Civil Justice Reform Task Force that was looking at ways that the court system could be modified, changed to provide the type of service that's necessary today in today's world for the citizens of this state, for the businesses of this state, and let's just say there's lots in that report that the court is beginning to work through to look at and to study in terms of what changes we need going forward. And that kind of brings me full circle. I mean, I was born and raised in Southern California. I've now lived well over half of my life, however, in Iowa, and I'm an Iowan by choice. I've given away my spot in California hundreds of times to others. And I'm an Iowan by choice, and specifically, I never thought when I came here that I would spend 35 years working for the Iowa Judicial Branch. But because of this system, this institution, this state, there's no other place I would go to work. David, thank you so much for taking the time to share this valuable information on the Judicial Branch with me. I greatly appreciate it. You are more than welcome.